Hey, just before we get started, I want to give a shout out to those of you who have helped support the show to date. I want to thank you very much. It means a lot to us and it really helps make the show what it is today. It's supposed to be built on a mix of advertising and listener support. And um, if you haven't and you find value in the show, I really encourage you and welcome you to support the show. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio and click on the support button. We all love to modify our bikes, and why shouldn't we? Because you don't ride like your buddy or your neighbor, and we all have our own likes and dislikes. The question is, where did you get your information on what to modify and how to do it? And how valid is that information? You're going to find out today on this episode. We also have another rider skills segment on energy conservation and poser moves for great riders. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregor W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lanfear. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rowe. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Hey, I'm Carol DeVell, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Ready. Yeah. 
It's common practice for us to search the internet to see what mods we should make to a bike that we're looking at buying or maybe one we just bought. We research for common complaints and their fixes, and more importantly, what mods quote unquote must be done for any particular model. It's crowdsourcing, information gathered from people often from around the globe, and it's seemingly a great way to gather information. But the internet is sort of like the Wild West, quite often with no one there to verify or quantify the information that we're receiving. So the real question is, where does this information originate? And more importantly, should we be blindly following it? Well, to talk about this today, we have Warren Milner, an ex-Honda employee that spent 30 years working closely with product planning and research and development for new models at Honda. Warren has a deep understanding of how motorcycles are designed and just how much research and development goes into any modifications for any one of these given designs. Now, when I met Warren, he was doing a presentation that talks about internet information and how that information affects motorcycle modifications and even motorcycle design at the factory. Okay, my name is uh, Warren Milner. I am originally from uh, Kingston, Jamaica, but now uh, live in Canada and have lived here since 1978. So I'm more Canadian now than I am Jamaican. And uh, I worked for Honda for 30 of those years in Canada, but I'm now uh, retired from Honda and uh, spend my time riding motorcycles mostly. Warren, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. So when I met you, you were giving a presentation on internet information, particularly for motorcycles, and just how it affects the way we look at and modify our bikes. Also, where that information comes from. Yes, well, I, th- I think the problem nowadays is, you know, the Internet is, is a great tool. But the problem with the Internet is, you know, everybody has an opinion. And some of those opinions are valid and some of them are not. So what happens is it's really hard for the average Joe to sort through the variety of things that are available and understand which ones are giving good advice and which ones are you know, nonsense. And there really is a lot of nonsense out there. Anytime you you research anything, you have some sort of problem with your vehicle, your motorcycle, you look it up on the internet and you can just sort through days worth of postings about try this and try that. And and, I mean, even if you look at a, um, you're looking for reviews for something for like, let's just mention tires. But if you were looking for a tire review, you'll find people who write complete reviews having only ridden on them for a week. And it just doesn't make sense. Exactly. And this is the problem. And and even worse, what I find, it it really frustrates me. I mean, my background is, you know, I'm I'm a technical guy. I've I've been in the industry. I've worked for Honda for 30 years. You know, I I was a technician, a journeyman technician for years. I worked at Honda in R&D. And I really do know, you know, what makes these things tick. And you'll see some of these discussions on, on the web. And, you know, the guy has a problem. He's asking for advice. And some of the advice that he's getting is is downright dangerous, you know, and you, you feel almost an obligation to step in and, and, and correct it. But again, the problem with the Internet is you're just another voice in the wilderness. They don't know. There's no way of letting them know that you actually know and that this is relevant advice and what you've been told so far is, is not. And so what happens is, and I've seen this where, I've sort of waded into one of these discussions with absolutely accurate advice and been ridiculed 
you know, on the website for being an idiot who doesn't know anything. So that's what I mean. There really is no way to, to tell on the Internet. And, and this new trend of, you know, we'll tell you how to fix your own bike is a very, very dangerous thing because, you know, automobiles, you make a little mistake you know, doing something on an automobile and, you know, the engine shuts off or, you know, the, the car doesn't work quite right, you know, the chances are the worst that's going to happen is it's going to be inconvenient. But, you know, if you make a mistake on a motorcycle, a motorcycle's, you know, function is such a precise thing and, and the lack of function can create such a disaster that, you know, people really shouldn't be casually you know, taking advice from strangers on the internet to tear their suspension apart and make adjustments inside or, you know, take their engine apart and set their valves. Oh, you can do it. You know, it's not that hard. Just jump right in there and do it. And, you know, it, it really is concerning because, it, you know, it could be lethal, you know, making a mistake in one of these sort of critical function areas on a motorcycle. And often what people are doing to find credibility is they're looking for somebody who posts a lot um, or has some sort of social media presence. And, and that doesn't tell you anything at all. It just tells you that they're on there and they're talking a lot. Exactly. And, and what happens is some of these people talk with such authority that they sound exactly like they know what they're talking about. You know, So it's really hard to sort of confront them and say, you know, actually what you're saying is, is, is rubbish and, you know, actually the opposite of what you've just said may be true, you know, kind of thing. Because who are you? You're just another voice in the wilderness, you know? And the thing is, we're, we're at sort of early stages in the internet and in the, in the, I think in the big scheme of things, things are still developing, you know, um, uh, our way of getting information and, and um, even passing information around is changing almost on a daily, certainly on a yearly basis as certain platforms become more popular. So it's, um, this stuff all has to be worked out. Maybe, you know, 25 years, 35 years from now, it'll all be worked out and people will have standard ways of understanding who knows what they're talking about. But at this point, it's extremely difficult. And, and even the people who are doing the designing and, and manufacturing things are influenced by the information they get from the internet, as you had explained in your presentation that I sat through. Can you just describe that feedback loop? Well, so, so what happens is, um, you know, the Internet is a, a valuable source of information and there is a lot of information out there. But as I said, a lot of it is relevant and a lot of it isn't. But what happens is, you know, some guy hears there's a new bike coming out and he gets all excited and he starts, you know, researching on the Internet. And he's, you know, he's, he's excited. He's an enthusiast. You know, he's, he's reading everything he can find about this new bike that's coming. And so he's, he's researching and, and some of the stuff he's getting is good and some of the stuff he's getting is bad. Then you get one of these guys coming in who claims to be an expert and, as you said, is a frequent poster. So he's kind of seen as, oh, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about. So he comes in and starts laying down some laws, you know, about whatever this new product is saying, oh, well, you know, so-and-so made a big mistake because it doesn't have enough of this or it has too much of that or it's too tall or it's too short or it's, you know, whatever the thing may be. And because he sounds like an expert, that kind of becomes the accepted truth. So then what happens is as the research continues, slowly you see people start repeating that story until that story sort of takes on a life of its own and becomes fact. 
you know, or, you know, fact with quotation marks. So then what happens is, you know, the story starts to spread and to spread and to spread. And then press guys get invited to a press launch, for example. And, you know, one of the things about press that you have to be careful with is motorcycle journalists. There's no school that a motorcycle journalist goes to that teaches him, you know, the mechanics of how motorcycles work or how to ride or how to race or how to test. You know, at best, they took a course in how to write, you know, more so than specialized motorcycle engineering knowledge. So what happens is they're easily influenced by the web as well. So what happens is they get invited to a launch. They're human, you know. They want to understand what's going on, so they start researching it on the web too. And they hear from the web that, and again, often this conjecture from the web is based on no actual hands-on experience with the bike. It's from reading spec charts. So this press guy will read on the web that, you know, the bike seems to be too heavy or the bike seems to be underpowered or the bike seems to be too narrow or whatever the thing may be. So when he goes to the press launch with that sort of in the back of his mind, of course, that's what he finds. You know, and he doesn't want to sort of go against common opinion. Like he doesn't want to look like an idiot and say, well, actually, I thought it was perfect in this regard. I don't know what this guy's talking about. So they tend to sort of continue that rumor and it now becomes fact. So you start to see things in these press launches where, again, as an as a experienced guy, I know this isn't true. Like, I know this isn't an issue, but it was on the web. The press guys read it on the web. They went to the launch. The guys who did the launch obviously, obviously didn't do a very good job of explaining, you know, what the problem was. And so, you know, they report back from the launch and say, yes, you know, this bike's really nice, but it does seem a little heavy, for example. And, you know, again, now that just furthers the story. And then what happens is these focus groups come along that the manufacturers or distributors, you know, have these focus groups to help them determine future products. So they come along now and they start their initial research on the web and they hear this again by now rampant story that the bike has a problem with something and so they found this on the web and they have a focus group to confirm it and the people in the focus group have often all seen it on the web so they all know it's a problem as well and so they tell the focus group, oh yes this is a real problem now the focus group tells the story to back to the manufacturer and says oh people find that your bike is is way too bad with this particular thing so now the factory goes, gets sort of distracted from reality and goes off on a tangent trying to fix a problem that doesn't really exist. <laughs> and then, of course, they fix the problem. So they make the bike lighter or shorter or longer or whatever the issue was. And then they start to tease a campaign on the web to tell people, hey, look, we've, we've listened to you and we've made the next bike, you know, this way. And so then, you know, now the story actually has become fact because now the manufacturer has said it was a pro- admitted it was a problem and that they fixed it. Whereas, in fact, perhaps there was no problem to start with. 
So what you're describing then is is as a system that's completely dysfunctional. <laughs> and at this point, you kind of wonder how, how far along are we? How many generations are we into this? And I mean, what happens from here? In other words, if you're if 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 I'm on the say I'm looking for a bike and I want to figure out you know uh, I get a review on the bike before I tr- before I buy this bike, what am I going to trust? How do I find the trusted source if even the manufacturer is is influenced by the feedback loop on the internet? Well, again, there really is, and this is, you know, the problem with the Internet today. I don't think there is a a reliable source of information anymore because so much of sort of what's out there is so influenced by the Internet now that it's almost impossible to get accurate information. So what people have done, which, again, is another big mistake, is people have now turned to user groups and said, you know, I'm thinking of buying, you know, X, Y, Z. You guys all right, X, Y, Z. Can you tell me a little bit about X, Y, Z? But again, a lot of the guys who write X, Y, Z have been already been influenced by the Internet. So again, you think that this is going to be honest information because they're telling you based on their personal experience. But their personal experience is biased by what they've read on the Internet. And I've seen this so many times where, you know, I've bought a bike. I've done the same thing. I've gone to the internet and I've read the stories about it and, you know, the guys who've written it and all of this. But again, I know enough about it to know, you know, to sort of weed through and say, well, what's good information and what's bad information? And then I will buy my own bike and I will decide for myself. But for example, you know, I, I bought a bike uh, recently and when I looked up on the internet, you know, the, the, the general consensus on the internet is the suspension on this bike is so bad, the chances are you'll die on your way home from the dealership. You know, <laughs> before you even throw a leg over this bike, you have to completely trash the suspension and buy some aftermarket pieces and put on there. Or, you know, the best thing is to take the front end off of a Yamaha so-and-so and bolt it on there and you will be shocked how much better it will be and it'll change your life and all of this. And it's, it's complete nonsense. So I bought the bike and I rode it and there's nothing wrong with the suspension, you know. But again, it's, it's, not, it's not one guy that's saying this. Everybody says this. It's just accepted now as... The suspension on this bike is of absolutely no use whatsoever, and you have to make changes to it, or you you know you're going to be compromised your entire life with this bike. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with the suspension on the bike, but you know it's just accepted, and and it's sort of the same thing. Part of the problem with the web is that it seems to be sort of black or white. It, you know, it's either good or it's bad. You, you don't often get a sort of balanced view that says, well, it's good at these things, but it isn't so good at these things. You, you tend to get, I love it or I hate it, you know, and, and there's very little sort of gray area. Whereas, in fact, most things on most bikes are a gray area. You know, they're designed for a wide variety of riders and most of the things are adjustable in some way, shape or form. And so you know, they'll meet the needs of most riders. But if there's a very specific thing that a rider is looking for and it doesn't meet that need, then he starts reporting that, you know, it, it's failed in its its role and it's it's just garbage. So, for example, 
um, as another very common one is, you know, the stock tires that the bike comes with are terrible. It's a very common one. So they'll say, again, you know, these tires that the bike comes with don't work in rain. They're lethal. You need to, you know, whatever you do, change them. In fact, you know, what you should do is negotiate with the dealer and have them change the PDI. And before you even get the bike, you know, don't ride with the stock tires. But again, there is no feedback as to, you know, you'll, you'll have statements like they're lethal in the wet. They just don't grip. Well, meaning what exactly? Meaning if you're rubbing your foot pegs on an oily road in the wet or, you know, you're trying to accelerate in a straight line in the wet or you're on a particularly super surface in the wet or, you know, all tires slip in the wet. So why is this particular tire worse than other tires in the wet? And again, is there a trade-off? So, for example... If it's a bike that's intended to do very high mileage, maybe the tire that's put on there is designed primarily for wear, meaning it's a harder compound. So it will give, you know, sort of the expected lifespan. You'll get, you know, 15, 16,000 kilometers out of a set of tires. And yes, part of that compromise is so that the compound being a bit harder, it doesn't grip as well in the wet. But if they put a tire that works really, really, really well in the wet and pleases this one guy and he thinks it's perfect, it may only last 2,000 kilometers. So, again, but that guy, if he rode that tire, would tell you how great the tire works in the wet. You know, he doesn't say, but, you know, I wore half of it out just coming home from the dealership. You know, I've, I've talked to a couple of journalists that, that have that have sort of said along the lines of what you're saying, that, you know, I can't really go out and ride a bike and fault a bike anymore because there's so much goes into the design, the R&D for this stuff that I'm not even qualified to do it. All I can do is ride it and say what I like or don't like. And you got to wonder, what does that really tell us? Yes, exactly. And this is what I mean. Again, you know, if, if, if you're a journalist, you have to take the position. You have to really that you're an expert and that you have a skill set that, you know, helps you evaluate products. And, you know, they do. They have a lot of experience. They try a lot of different bikes. They get to try them back to back. So they do, they are able to have an opinion of, of this bike versus that bike. But again, you know, they are not experts, you know, in, in terms of, well, I shouldn't say that. Some of them are not experts in the particular thing that they're operating. So, for example, if you take a modern 1,000cc sport bike to a racetrack, I would say there probably isn't a journalist, certainly none that I know, that can ride that bike at its limit. So the discussion about how well the suspension works or how well the brakes work or the traction control works or the ABS works, these are all based on, you know, perhaps that bike is designed to be ridden at the limit. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe that's what the engineers were going for. They're looking at this bike as a bike that's being homologated for racing. They're, it's going to be a platform for racing. It's going to be used primarily for racing. So they've built it that way. And so you get this thing where the, the press guy says, you know, the suspension seems a little stiff, for example. But it may be that that's because it needs to be that stiff if it's being ridden at the limit. But because he's not at the limit, it doesn't feel quite right to him. You see mm, what I mean? Yeah. So you, you get this situation where, 
they often can't push the bike to what is considered its limit. They're pushing it to what is their limit. And depending on what their limit is, you know, it may be nowhere near what the bike was designed for. So, yes, they have an opinion. Yes, the opinion is valid. But it doesn't mean it will be valid for every person who rides that bike. And really, it's compromise, isn't it? it yeah. There has to be a compromise in there. And that's what I mean, you have to do when you build any product is try and say, okay, what's going to work for most of the people best for most of the time. Exactly. So if you go and you take a bike and you, and you think that it's going to be, uh, you know, maybe ridden on the racetrack, that's mm-hmm. not what a street bike is going to be sold for. That's not what it will have been built for. Exactly. That's sort of taking it to a different use. Well, well I'll, give you, I'll give you a perfect example. I, I was having dinner over on the weekend and I was talking to a guy who had a Honda RC51. And he was saying that he rides it on the racetrack, he takes it to track days, and what a terrible bike it is on this particular track. It It's heavy, it's clumsy, it's awkward, it doesn't handle right, he can't make it handle right, he's made all kinds of changes, probably got all the advice off the internet, he's made all kinds of changes to it, and he's changed this, and he's set up that, and he's done this, and he's done that, and so on and so forth. And, you know, there's nothing that can be done. The bike just doesn't work and he's learned to live with it. He loves it anyway, but, you know, it really doesn't work in a racetrack setting. And I'm thinking the funny thing about that, and I didn't say anything because, again, how do you, you know, realistically, how do you uh, argue with somebody because you're just a guy? And so I didn't say anything, but the RC51, when it came out, is probably the most successful racing motorcycle in the history of motorcycles. In the first year that it came out, it won the Canadian Superbike Championship, the American Superbike Championship, the Australian Superbike Championship, the British Superbike Championship, the Isle of Man, Le Mans, Baldor, the Suzuka 8 Tower, World Superbike. You know, it, it was completely dominant in, its, in, in the year that it came out, and probably more so than any motorcycle in history. And it won the races because I was there on the track that this guy's complaining it doesn't work at. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. So I'm just sitting here thinking, well, I don't know what you've done to your bike. <laughs> but, you know, the way they came from the factory, they were just fine on every racetrack around the world. It seems really odd that you're the only guy who can't make it work, you know. Again, maybe it's the way you're using it. Maybe it's your riding style. Maybe it's some modification you've made to the bike that you read off the internet that actually doesn't work, you know? So, but, but where do you start? You know, how, how do you have that conversation with this guy who's, you know, he's laying this down as it's the law. This is not his opinion. This is his experience. You know, he's taken it to the track and this is what he has found. So you can't really refute that by saying, well, you're wrong. You didn't find that, <laughs> you know, obviously he, he feels that way. So you just have to let him continue on in that belief. Well, you mentioned about buying this motorcycle that you just got, and it has people on the internet are saying, look, you have to do changes to this right off the bat. I think almost every bike has that. You know, if you go onto the, the user groups and the forums, you'll find the list of modifications that you should do to your bike before you even get going. And I think a lot of people do it. Like they'll buy a KLR 650 and they'll go through that list of modifications and do them all. 
the the problem I see with this is you have no ground zero. You have no baseline to go by. Mm-hmm. You have no idea what you've done, what you've changed, and and what difference it makes in your handling. So let's just let's just look at that for a second and talk about suspension because you had an example about how I think you said every bike that that you were uh, involved with with the launch of everyone said the suspension was too soft. Can you talk about that? Okay, well, there's a, there's this sort of general belief on the internet, and again, it's 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 not brand specific; it, it's co- sort of across the board. Um, but funnily, the more exotic and the more expensive the bike is, the less the complaint seems to exist. And there seems to be again this misunderstanding that because a motorcycle is expensive, then it has better suspension somehow. But anyway. The, the general consensus is that most motorcycles, the way they come from the factory, the suspension is too soft and, and, and needs to be, you know, modified almost immediately for the average rider. And, and you get a lot of this discussion going along the lines of, you know, Japanese engineers are physically smaller, lighter people. So when they're designing a bike, they tend to set the median you know, a bit lower than the typical North American who is larger and heavier and so on and so forth. And that's why suspensions are on Japanese bikes are always wrong and always too soft. But again, there seems to be a bit of a misunderstanding of what the function of suspension is. You know, suspension has a number of different roles to perform in the operation of a motorcycle. It's not as simple as, well, do the forks dive under braking or does the suspension bottom when you land from a jump or, you know, there's a lot of things that suspension has to do. So for example, suspension, obviously one of them is comfort. Um, and another one of them is, uh, the, the attitude of the bike. If you want to call it that meaning how much squat you get under acceleration, how much dive you get under braking, you know, how much suspension compresses when you lean it into a corner. Um, there's also the suspension's ability on feedback to the rider, meaning how does the steering react? How does the bike feel? What's your level of confidence in, in the bike? But there's also uh, some parts of suspension that are related to um, the ability to follow the terrain. And, and arguably, you know, that's one of the most important things that suspension does. It allows the wheel to stay in contact with the ground over rough terrain. So if, if you think about, uh, and people say, oh, well, I just ride my bike on the street, so I don't have to worry about that. But the street technically can also be rough terrain, meaning bumps and chops and so on. And, and this is something we've seen in Canada. You go to Canadian racetrack, the surface tends to be a lot bumpier and choppier than, let's say, a typical American racetrack, partly because of the cold here and, you know, the frost heaving and so on and so forth. It ripples the track surface. But also, you know, the reality of the scales of racing in Canada is the tracks can't afford to repave as often because they don't make as much money as some of the bigger American tracks. So the pavement tends to be older and broken and choppier and so on, and the the roads are the same. So the suspension's ability to follow the road, follow the bumps, keep the tire in contact with the ground, it's probably its most crucial function and something that, again, the engineers spent countless hours trying to work out what is the best compromise for that. And the way I sort of say it to people is because some guy on the internet says the suspension is too soft, don't assume that that is correct. 
you know, you need to write it for yourself. And an easy way to tell is your suspension should typically bottom once or twice in every ride. See, now I think that's a, an incredible statement because when you said that, I, I could almost feel the people who are sitting there listening to your presentation sort of gasp. He, he said, bottom out? <laughs> Why would you want your suspension to bottom out? Exactly, because what that means is if it bottoms out once or twice in every ride, it means you're using all your suspension. That's what it's there for. If you're not bottoming out, it means your suspension is too stiff. If it's bottoming out all the time, you know, 10 times, 15 times, 20 times every ride, well, then it's too soft. You know, so so the very first thing is, does it bottom out or not? It should bottom every now and then. That is normal for the suspension, and there are systems built into the suspension to help it deal with that so that that bottoming out doesn't damage anything, doesn't upset the stability, doesn't throw you off the bike. You know, there's systems built in to help ease it into that bottoming. So people think of bottoming as it's the end of the world. It's not. It, it's a perfectly normal part of suspension operation. So again, you know, depending on who you are as a rider, so a guy who, for example, is jumping his bike, well, he may be bottoming suspension all the time. But if you never jump your bike, you don't need to have the same level of suspension as that guy because you're not bottoming yours. So, again, the rule of thumb is it should bottom once or twice every ride. And if it's bottoming it more frequently, the first step is to adjust it. So most modern suspension is adjustable now. So try adjusting it first. If it's bottoming too much, make it stiffer. If it's not bottoming enough, make it softer using the stock adjustments. And only when you've exhausted that do you now need to consider, you know, aftermarket or accessory solutions because – you know, again, too many people, they, they just jump right in there. So a g- example, a perfect example of this now is, you know, this modern trend to adventure bikes. It's one of the highest growing segments and so on and so forth. And what's happening is a lot of guys are going to adventure bikes from cruisers or sport bikes, bikes that traditionally have uh, stiffer suspension with shorter travel. Well, again, one of the things that the engineers have to work with is how much suspension travel does the bike, does the design of the bike allow them to have? So, for example, cruisers, you know, they want to have that low, lean, long, you know, ground-hugging look to them. Well, part of that compromise, and this is sort of a marketing decision, is they can't have much suspension travel because more suspension travel raises the bike. So what happens is a typical cruiser will only have two or three inches of suspension travel to work with. So it has to be fairly stiff because it doesn't have much, you know, travel to work with. So, so inherently, cruisers tend to be a bit choppy and a bit stiff in their ride. Sport bikes a little bit the same. Again, sport bikes would typically, let's say, have four or five inches of travel. And again, they can generate some very serious braking forces because they've got very powerful brakes, really sticky tires. They tend to have short wheelbases, so there's a lot of weight transfer, you know, under braking. So they typically have stiffer suspension, again, than is ideal for comfort, let's say, as part of their high-performance uh, setting. So you get one of these guys going onto an adventure bike that has nine inches of travel, for example, and he hits the front brake and, you know, there's a lot of dive in the front end. The guy, it feels wrong to him. He thinks that this is a problem. 
oh my goodness, oh, this bike is terrible. And if you go on any of the adventure websites or any brand of bike, it's probably the most common complaint you see about suspension is, I can't believe how much a suspension dives under braking. But actually, that's completely normal. That's all part of having a long travel suspension bike. And it's that travel that allows it to absorb you know, washboard roads and potholes and bumps and lumps and, you know, all the things, ruts and so on that you find on trails. So, again, it can be adjusted. You can buy aftermarket springs and you can put thicker fork oil in and you can do all kinds of things that will stiffen up that front end and make it feel just like a sport bike when when you pull the front brake. But now you're not using most of the travel that it has because under that braking, you know, it's going to dive two inches like a sport bike instead of the normal six inches like an adventure bike. And basically what you've done is you've compromised everything else the suspension does for a good feeling in only one parameter of its operation. So, so you think you've made this improvement. And again, you, what do you do? You go on the web and, oh, guys, you've probably all found the the forks dive terribly on your so-and-so. So all you have to do is buy this super heavy spring and put in 15-weight fork oil, and it will transform your bike. And it mm-hmm. will. It will fix that specific problem. But you've compromised everything else. You know, but again, and I, I, other guys reading this will go, yeah, yeah, because my bike does that. Man, this thing dives. So I'm going to do that mod. And then he comes back and says, you know, guy number one was absolutely right. This fixes that problem. And again, it takes off and it becomes fact. And I think this is what, what we all do is we end up creating problems as we go. Like for my, my process is that when I'm making modifications to my bike is to do one single thing at a time, ride with it for a long time and get a feel for what that one thing has done. I've seen other people, friends of mine, who will put all their modifications on their bike. And to me, it's crazy because you have no idea what you're modifying. And like I said before, what changes you've made. But let's look at that suspension one. I don't think a lot of us realize how much work and design goes into building a suspension to suit the bike. You had worked with um, the ATV division of Honda, developing a suspension system for them, and, and you even had an eye opening there. Tell us about that. Well, for again, a, a good example, we uh, we had an ATV in Canada that, and again, this just shows that the the user makes such a difference to the design of the ATV. We had uh, an ATV in Canada that we felt and this was when I worked at Honda we felt the suspension was too stiff on. The the machine was not comfortable. So we called up the factory and we said, we find the suspension on this machine is too stiff and we think we're losing sales because of it. And other manufacturers don't have suspension this stiff and the customers have indicated a clear preference for the other manufacturer's settings. And can you at least look at this and let us know? So the factory comes back and says, well, actually, American Honda are in charge of determining all the settings for North America, and they they haven't registered this complaint. So why would it be a problem in Canada and it's not a problem in the U.S.? So we said, well, we don't really know <laughs> why, but it really is a problem in Canada. So they said all right, well, we'll send some guys over and, you know, we'll see what you're talking about. And and to be honest, I think they were just trying to be 
courteous, you know. <laughs> so they, they, they sent a couple of guys over and I took them for a ride. And I said, we've brought our number one competitor and we've brought our bike and we're going to go for a ride. And you'll see right away, I said, you'll, you'll, you'll notice a difference before we leave this parking lot. So we went for a ride and I purposely chose trails that were rocky and rutted and bumpy and so on. And, you know, we'd done about 50 kilometers maybe. And I said, okay, here's how you can understand what I'm trying to say now. We're heading back to the truck now. Who wants to ride the competitor? And who wants to ride the Honda? Right? And all of them (laughs) said they'd prefer to ride the competitor because they were beat to death by the Honda by the time they got there. So they they were genuinely confused by this. Right. They really didn't understand why they could see the problem, but they couldn't understand how basically American Honda hadn't reported a similar thing. And American Honda were involved in the design and the development and the testing and so on of the machine. And this had never come out. So I said to the guy, it's possible that the majority American Honda is in California and it's possible that most of the testing that they did happened in the desert and you're riding in sand. It's a softer terrain the bumps are more gentle, you know, but the Canadian, you know, Northern Ontario, Northern Quebec are really, really rocky, really, really rough environments. And so it may just be usage. And this may be the perfect suspension setting, you know, landing from sand hoops, for example, but it's too stiff when it has to respond to, sharp, sudden inputs, you know, from rocks and ruts and so on, roots and what have you. So I said, now, if you were to ask American dealers in Michigan, New York State, I bet you they'd have the same complaints as Canada. So R&D said, all right, well, we'll we'll go back and we'll we'll do our research. And, And they came back and said, actually, the Northern American dealers have the same complaint. And nobody had brought it to their attention. So they're going to send a team over to uh, to test this. So they sent over a team of guys from Showa Suspension. Showa are the people that make Honda suspension or the vast majority of Hondas. And we went to northern Quebec and we rented a trail system, for want of a better word, and a hotel. And we stayed there for months riding through these trails on ATVs with uh, basically a computer on our back that measured every single thing that was happening, how far the suspension was moving and how you know, quickly it was moving and whether the front was moving in relation to the back and whether the wheels were leaving the ground and how much wheel spin it was creating and so on and so forth. So it was measuring every single thing that was happening. And the sort of analysis of that data was, yeah, this suspension is, is, is way too stiff. So they told us that there is nothing that can be done now with regard to the design of the machine. In other words, they can't make the machine lighter or the, the, you know, the A-arms or the suspension longer or, you know, they have to work within the basic design of the machine. So all they can do is work with the shock absorbers so they can work on spring rates and damping rates and see what they can accomplish. So... Again, months, months we spent there riding this trail day after day after day after day, 
making these very small little fine adjustments, you know, one shim here, you know, one pound less spring there, one pound spring there. And again, it wasn't just to make the machine comfortable. That would have been easy, just make everything softer. It was to make sure that it had the right balance, it steered properly, it, you know, the braking was properly, the traction was proper, the, you know, the balance front to rear, you know, how much it rolled when you cornered, you know, stability on a hill, like does the machine tend to roll over backwards when you're going up a steep hill because the rear suspension is collapsing. There's so many things that had to be considered that it, it, it isn't as simple as, well, just bolting on softer suspension. So after months and months of trying, they came up with a setting that they felt was the absolute best compromise that they could achieve. And it was day and night improvement over the original. So anyway, we all finished it. And again, everybody was pleased. Everybody was happy. Everybody was, you know, and we said to the factory, okay, great guys. You know, you guys have done an awesome job. We thank you so much for coming. And, you know, when can we expect to see this go into production? And they said, oh, well, you know, it's not that easy. Now that we have these settings, now we have to go back as R&D and test them to make sure that they don't cause another problem, meaning we don't have frames cracking because the suspension is putting too much load into the frame or swing arms flexing because the suspension is allowing it to bottom more often or, you know, roll stability. You know, there's, a, there's an, an angle that the machine has to be stable on and we need to make sure that, you know, it, it doesn't go past some critical angle and roll, you know, when it's on a side hill. He said, and but but he said, just for durability testing alone, it'll be two years wow. to, to, to run this thing through all the tests that they have to do to make sure that, you know, it doesn't cause another problem somewhere else. So we Incredible. said, well, we said, is there any way to speed that process up? And this just shows you sort of how committed we were to the project. We said, is there any way to speed that process up? And they said, well, we have to do a minimum of 16,000 kilometers of actual riding in order to uh, pass, to, you know, to give it a passing grade. So we can, in the meantime, do all the computer simulations. That, that's fairly straightforward. But there is no way around this 16,000 kilometer requirement for measuring, you know, what actual riding does to the system and that it doesn't cause any failures. So we said, well, how about we arrange to do that testing? And we rented the same area that we had been in and we hired guys to ride the ATV for 24 hours a day <laughs> for three months, every day, 24 hours a day, right through winter because we finished the the sort of testing all in, in, in the fall. So they had to ride right through winter. So we had to have a team of guys that we, you know, they got so cold that we just swapped them out and put a new guy in. And we finally got that all the tests had been completed and everything else. And we were able to bring it to market in about six months. So, but it just goes to show you there's so much that goes into that design and, and, and interesting side note, the, the sort of head project engineer from Japan told me that, when they went back to Japan, what they did is they downloaded the data from the computer and designed a test course in Japan that had the same obstacles 
gave the same reading on the computer as the trail in Canada. So for all intents and purposes, they recreated this Canadian trail at their test course in Japan. And for all future models that are being designed for Canada, part of the testing will occur there so that they're confident they can have the same feeling. So, but it just goes to show you, you know, that when you're reading on the internet that, ah, the suspension on this thing is, you know, garbage. You need to just bolt on the front end from some other bike or change your rear shock, you know, or if you take off the 500 shock and put on the 750 shock, it'll handle much better. You know, that kind of, of advice doesn't allow for any of this sort of balance or durability or, you know, the subtler points of how the suspension works as part of a bigger system. Again, it may improve the actual performance of a single aspect of the suspension, but how that relates to the entire suspension's role in all the other things the suspension has to do, you, you know, is, is sort of gone out the window. So the chances that some guy in his driveway has come up with a fix for something that the factory missed in their testing is just about impossible. With today's technology, I mean, you can see it as far as accessories go. If you go back 20 years, people were making a lot of accessories. There was a lot of home welding and things like that. You had to because there, there wasn't the products available there is now. Nowadays, everything is made to such incredible tolerances. I mean, even when you, you get a, you know, a set of racks you know, for, for your panniers, for your bike, most of the time they're manufactured to incredible tolerances. I mean, th these companies have put a lot of work into the R&D and that's to an accessory. I think most of us just don't realize how much is put into the actual design of the bike. Now, Having said that, that there, there's something that, that pops into my mind when we're talking about this sort of stuff. When a manufacturer designs something, they've got certain constraints. And one of them, of, of course, is dollar value. I mean, they've got to keep the thing within a certain price range. The other one is going to be the intended general use. And of course, that's general use, the, the average person riding it in the way that they think the bike is intended to ride. Those two things will certainly govern the quality or or, or at least the, the um, yeah, I guess it's quality, isn't it? I mean, even when it comes to suspension, you're going to be limited by your, your dollar value and your intended use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and again, don't get me wrong. I mean, I know I've been sort of going on a bit about this, but don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there isn't any circumstance in which, you know, a person needs to modify the original settings to improve the bike for their specific use. So a, a guy who's particularly heavy or particularly light or particularly aggressive, or, you know, there may be cases where it does make sense to, to change the stock settings. But what I'm getting at is just to willy-nilly wade in there because you read something on the internet, you know, it does not necessarily mean that, you know, you're going to improve things. And so, you know, some things you have to look at as in, in terms of their basic uh, construction. So, for example, fr a front fork. A front fork is a tube sliding inside another tube. Okay, that's the basis of it. One tube is fixed and one tube slides. That, that's the basis of every front fork that's out there. Whether it's painted gold and, you know, or is, you know, uh, titanium or aluminum or it, it, it doesn't dramatically affect how it works. What affects how it works is the settings that are inside. So, you know, again, oh, I'm going to bought the Olin's fork from so-and-so on my bike because everybody knows Olin's is good suspension. Olin's is great suspension, but that doesn't mean that an Olin's fork designed for 
A is going to work better on B than the fork it came with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so again, even within high quality componentry, you have to be careful because just because the component is of high quality doesn't mean it is suited to that particular bike. So, for example, you know, bolting on Brembo brakes. Brembo brakes are great brakes. Um, I used to do this presentation that sort of showed a, yeah. a lot of people, if you read, you know, and again, obviously, you're going to see some of my Honda bias coming out here because I worked there for so long. But one of my jobs when I was there was uh, training people on what the Honda advantage was or what the Honda difference was, if you want to call it that. And what I said is if you read a magazine articles, they will often say that Hondas are bland or boring or, you know, they work very well, but they don't excite. You know, they're 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 almost work too well. They're they're you know, they're they're too predictable. They're too ordinary in their function. And and I said, you know, that that is intentional, that that is the way, you know, as part of the design philosophy of Honda and the term that Honda used in those days is what they called total control. And what that means is you shouldn't need a special skill set in order to operate this machine, whether that machine be a lawnmower, a sports car, a motorcycle, you know, a dirt bike, a street bike, a cruiser, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. The, the things that are required for you to operate it, you know, you shouldn't have to have a special skill set. So, for example, when the NSX sports car came out, you know, it's a super light car with all kinds of power. But anybody with a driver's license should be able to drive it. It's not going to get away from you. It's not going to surprise you. It's not going to terrify you. It's not going to do something really strange. You know, it'll it'll respond the way that you expect it to respond. So that sort of philosophy results in uh, balance. Balance is what they're looking for. So, for example, if you have a brake system that's very powerful but doesn't offer a lot of feel, when it's tested by the press, they'll tell you how powerful it is. Oh, man, we couldn't believe how powerful the brakes were on this bike. One finger, lock the front wheel. You know, like, wow, what awesome, impressive, you know, it comes with these giant discs and these six-piston calipers, and the braking power is phenomenal on this bike. But they don't really talk about, you know, whether the average rider will find that disconcerting because it's almost too powerful or too abrupt or, you know, it doesn't lack enough feel. And so maybe it's a better balance to have a little less power and a little more feel, you know, a little softer suspension travel, but it stiffens up as it gets towards bottoming a little bit. So it allows the wheels to float a little bit, you know, that kind of thing that basically everything should respond in a, in a predictable manner. So in other words, if you turn the throttle to quarter throttle, you should get a quarter of the power that's available. And if you turn it to half throttle, you should get half of the power that's available. And you turn to three quarter, you get three quarter and so on. You know, if you pull the front brake with 10 pounds of force and you, you get this much stopping, well, 20 pounds of force should give you twice as much stopping and 30 pounds of force should give you three times as much stopping. And, and if everything is built that way, then what happens is you as a rider develop a real sort of affinity with the machine. And then what happens is it becomes very predictable, but on a subconscious level. So, for example, if 
a deer runs out in front of you and you're going to grab the front brake harder than you've ever grabbed it before. Something in the back of your mind already knows what's going to happen though. So even though you've never used it that hard before, somewhere in the back of your mind, you know what's going to happen because you know how much more force you're giving it than normal. And because the response is very linear, you can at a subconscious level predict what, what's sort of going to happen. So uh, I'll give you an example I used to give them. So if you have two sport bikes, you know, one that's very well balanced and very well thought out and another one that isn't, but has lots of really nice componentry on it. So on paper, it seems really, really nice. So you're riding in spring, the roads are still a little bit sandy and dirty and so on and so forth. And you pull away from a stop sign and, you know, around the corner. And the rear tire goes through some sand as you're accelerating and the rear tire spins up and you fall down. Your, your response to that is, goddamn government should do something about cleaning up these roads. This is ridiculous. You know, I could have got hurt there, you know. So now you're on the balanced bike and you go through this same turn and you hit the same sand and your rear wheel spins up and the bike slews sideways, but you save it and you keep going down the road, your response is the goddamn government should do something about these roads. You don't think, thank goodness I bought the balanced bike because if I had been on an unbalanced bike, I probably would have gone down there. You'd be completely unaware of it. Right. You see, because subconscious level, when the bike did its thing and you responded to what it was doing, you responded in the right way because on a subconscious level, you kind of knew what was going to happen. And so you instinctively sort of did the right thing and the bike recovered and you managed to go down the road. And that's what the difference is between a balanced engineering package and a package that has a lot of nice stuff bolted on it, but it doesn't work in harmony. And that that harmony is what's expensive. That harmony is what R&D time really is. You know, the the months and months and months and months of fine tuning and testing to make sure that all these parts are working to complement each other, not fight each other. That is the real expense in R&D. And that's what you're paying for. That's why you're putting out the bucks for your bike. Because really, I mean, you could just go and, and manufacturers could just put out a standard frame, throw some wheels on it and engine it and say, go for it. And you can modify it to your heart's content and make your bike. But exactly. You, you, you can. You can buy an Olin's fork, you can buy an Olin's shock, you can buy Brembo brakes, you can buy, you know, a fuel injection system from Bosch. You, all of these components, as a, as, a, as a manufacturer, you can just go and buy them. You know, they're available. But the chance of you actually getting them together in a combination that is complementary and that works like a bike that's designed is zero. Exactly. And, and this is why you see a lot of the really, really small, you know, these little manufacturers who kind of spring up and, and they sound really good because they're using a lot of high-end componentry. And then the press test it and you get these things like, well, there was a, a minor glitch in the fuel delivery or there was a, you know, but they're working on that and they'll sort that out. But you always get that. You never get the man, this thing is flawless. <laughs> because flawless is very expensive. <laughs> it takes a very long time with very well-paid people <laughs> working to make something flawless. You know, it, it, it's, it doesn't happen by accident. <laughs> You know, it, it's a lot of computer time and it's a lot of engineers testing time. It's a lot of test riders, countless hours, you know, so 
it's not it's not as simple as and again you get this a lot on the internet you know oh such and such a management factory is an idiot because you know if they were to use the engine from that bike with the chassis of that bike and the suspension from this other bike they'd sell them all day long you know but and and yes they would if if it all worked as a package but it wouldn't work as a package, and the factory knows that. It, again, they're not stupid. They they know what the limitations are, and and sort of what they have to work with. And everything's a compromise. I mean, you know, even when it comes to a race bike, if you build a race bike, you can go so far as building a race bike for a single track. And, exactly. and have it highly tuned and work beautifully on that track. But if you wrote it down the road, it's going to be a piece of junk and there's going to be all kinds of things you would complain about. So it's, what I was going to suggest is then, so if we have to be mindful at least of our modifications, then perhaps mm-hmm. what we should be doing is because some of us will buy a bike and say, okay, this bike was generally made for, you know, mostly street riding. I'm going to do a lot of dirt with this. I want to do some modifications. We need to create that baseline, don't we? We need to ride the bike as it is, figure out what we don't like, what we want to modify, and then start doing it one bit at a time. Exactly. And, and this is the thing I've always said to people. No matter what bike you buy, the starting point is you just ride it the way it comes first. Before you do anything to it, just ride it the way it comes first. And by ride it, I don't mean 200K. I mean, go through at least 10,000 K with the bike as it comes from the factory before you start second guessing it. And unless during that 10,000 K there is some glaring error that does not suit your riding style, but don't feel obligated to go out and, you know, don't even try the stock settings, you know? Uh, we, we always used to have this this thing where when we were troubleshooting uh, Hondas that had a problem, I always used to say to the mechanics, the very first step is to take off anything that's not made by Honda. Okay, Unbolt anything that's not made by Honda, put it back to the way it was supposed to be. Then let's make sure that the problem still exists. Now we can work forward because... If, for example, it's it's got a bad hesitation under acceleration, but the guys put on a different carb or a different air filter or a different exhaust system, that may be why. <laughs> you know what I mean? We don't know that there's an actual problem with the bike yet. It may be just out of balance. It may not be that there is an actual failed component anywhere. It may just be out of balance. So my, my first advice would be just ride it the way it comes first. All the stock settings Everything completely stock until you feel you're completely comfortable with it. Then, as you said earlier, change one thing at a time. Don't bolt on a whole bunch of stuff all at the same time because if it doesn't work quite right, you won't know. <laughs> you won't know which one of the things it is that may be upsetting it. So if, you, if you're going to do it sort of very methodically, one thing at a time, and again, Test that thing for a while. Don't test that thing for the ride home and and then do the next thing. You know, spend two weeks riding with that new thing and try some different settings on that new thing and some different adjustments on that new thing until, again, you're comfortable that you're getting everything that that thing can give you. And don't seek advice on the Internet during that phase. You know, once you have your own personal awareness of limitations, 
now you can go to the internet because now you are in a position to make an intelligent or sort of you're now making a much more educated decision. Well, this is all great information, and certainly I hope it helps people out there who are looking to do some modifications to their bike. Warren, thank you very much for coming on and talking about it. All right, man, no problem at all, anytime. I've been speaking with Warren Milner, a semi-retired motorcycle industry expert from Ontario, Canada. We're going to be right back in just a minute. We've got rider skills coming up next with Brett Tax, and he's going to teach us some poser skills. Stay with us. And of course, when you start pushing your adventure bike from the Starbucks parking lot to the dirt, you're very likely going to enjoy the added leverage, comfort, and durability of IMS foot pegs. IMS has been producing high-quality parts for racers since 1976, and they've got a complete line of foot pegs for us adventure riders. Drop by their website and see why so many people are running with the IMS pegs. They're cast-certified 17-4 stainless steel, certified heat treating, watershed design to keep them clean naturally. They're built in the USA, and to top it all off, a lifetime warranty www.imsproducts.com and be sure of course anytime you're dealing with them let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio This is some of the most difficult single track trail I've ridden laying bikes down and having to drag them under down trees and going over these huge logs and dropping off drop off and I was just happy to survive to be honest Now here we are for another of our exclusive rider skill segments where we talk methods, tips, and tricks from pro instructors to help make you a better rider. And as usual, we have Brett Tax with us for this segment. Brett is an accomplished motorcycle instructor, having uh, instructed countless riders, both basic and advanced, on and off the road. Actually, for a number of years, Brett also did the training for the military as well. Now, Brett, you just came back from a butt-stomper 24-hour race. What is that? It is a 24-hour race. You can run Ironman or with a team, and the race starts at 10 a.m. in the morning, and it doesn't stop until 10 a.m. the next day. So you run day and night nonstop, and the whole goal is, uh, you know, the most laps, and, you know, sometimes you win by attrition, and sometimes you win just because you're really good. <laughs> you're seriously riding 24 hours. Uh, it yes, it's a nonstop. I've I've done one that was down south and it was always muddy and out in the fields. But this one, they call it the bunt stomper, and they're not kidding. This thing was, I mean, elevation change that I've. This is some of the most difficult single track trail I've ridden, and it was their lap course, just round and round and round. I mean, we were laying bikes down and having to drag them under down trees and going over these huge logs and dropping off drop-offs, and and it, it was just insane. And I was just happy to survive, to be honest. <laughs> so how many people survived the race? <laughs> um, there were there were. Let's see. I think four teams that that dropped out. There were a few guys got injured, of course, you know, on on races like this. But um, there was an Ironman. I was embarrassed because there was an Ironman out there that was 60 years old 
and he outlapped our team. My team, he outlapped us by more than double. Wow. I mean, it was insane. And he's running by himself. By himself. Wow. Solo. You did 25 laps in 25 hours, and it was it was incredible. Um, I, I just had to turn around and go, wow, these guys, they know these trails. They're, they're phenomenal riders. And, you know, I had to look back at myself and kind of go, gosh, um, you know, something about being off the bike for over a year, uh, you know, as far as dirt bike and single track and not make it to the gym as much as I should. It, uh, it definitely showed at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is that that guy's inspiration, I, I look at that and think, okay, that's fantastic. You know, it, if somebody can do that, that gives me hope. Well, it, and it reminds me of the same thing. You know, I turn around and I'm like, I, I was making a little post on Facebook and I'm like, yeah, I'm in the 50 side of 40. And, and I turn around and I find out what this guy's numbers is. And I'm like, well, <laughs> Shucks. <laughs> You're just a pup. I, I'm just, I got nothing. I got nothing. I just have to bow to the guy and go, nice job, you know. So what did you learn on this? Well, you know, the biggest realization watching these guys and even doing what I was, you know, what I normally teach is it, it really came down to energy conservation. And the only races I really do on dirt bikes are endurance races. And I've done much better in the past, but I, never at the top of the heap. And these guys are, they just... They're riding these obstacles and these these rock shelves and these these you know eight and ten foot drop offs on these sixty degree downhills with logs and rocks, and they're doing it with very little effort. There's no way you can do that and burn a ton of energy and make it through. I mean, in seven miles you're smoked, you know. And these were you know seven mile loops. You know, every time you went out, one lap is seven miles, and it just reminded me how important it is that we, you know, conserve that energy and why we stress it so much in the training that, that you and I talk about and the skills you and I talk about that we've got to conserve energy. This is for us as riding adventure motorcycles, which are big and heavy. And as you pointed out before, not dirt bikes. Well, and, and again, you know, the thing that, that really caught me not by surprise, but uh, certainly it was more impactful than I was expecting was I'm not riding my dirt bike every day. I mean, I, I was, you know, you know, I just got back from Africa and that's not the same type of riding. And I've been out doing adventure training and riding the BDRs and, and leading tours. And that's just not the same thing. And when you get into this, you realize it, it makes a difference in most adventure riders. They're not living on their bikes. They're not doing this every day. They don't get the chance to, they take their vacation or they get out on the weekends and it, it shows if you're not on it all the time. So how do we conserve energy as we're riding? Well, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, staying up on the pegs and, and, and how every time you drop, you know, you drop your butt to the seat, you're giving up some kind of control. And every time you stand and sit, you're burning energy. And one of the things that I was reminded of a few times that I, I got stuck on, you know, some uphill stuff and, and early in the race, I did great, rode up everything. It was no big deal. But the farther I got into the 24 hours, the harder those hills got, the more those logs became obstacles to me. And it was just the fatigue. And I was reminded as my fatigue increased, my momentum slowed down. I slowed the bike down or I would come to a stop and assess an obstacle that I'd ridden over multiple times. And every time I, I took that bike out of motion, I burned energy. I wasted energy, keeping those bikes moving, staying up in control of it makes so much difference. 
it's like a decreasing loop, isn't it? You know, you, you start to, you, you get tired and then you make mistakes and you're even wasting more energy to make up for those mistakes. Well, and, and if you think about it, we do this, when you get stuck, if you can see a mud or, or in this case, we had these really narrow single track hills that got rutted, you know, over time and, and these downhills were getting more and more rutted every time, you know, every lap, you know, these riders going through. But every time you get stuck, you will burn more energy getting out of that one situation than probably riding nearly the entire lap because you're, you're now in the ground, whether you're trying to paddle the bike through or you're wrestling the bike off of the trail or you're wrestling it out of a, out of a, a situation, it just is exhausting. And so if you can avoid this and keep the bike moving, it just made such a difference. And, and even just the, you know, the stability of the bike, you know, when you have that motion induced balance, the slower you go, the more the bike deflects off of rocks and you, and you can't rebound off of things and, and you stop reading the terrain so clearly. And it just, you just got to keep moving and, and having the right skill sets and having the right confidence and, and conserving the energy so you can continue to make the right choices helps you keep in motion. It reminds me of what you've said before about getting stuck and trying to get yourself unstuck, doing your best attempt the first time so you don't have to redo it because every time you have to redo it, you're using up more energy, more time and more resources. And even just worrying about things that the, the thought process of going through, how am I going to get this out? And the frustration that can sometimes, you know, be accompanied with this, it, it wears on you and it burns energy and it can be so critical. And, and like I said, with, with adventure riders, we're not usually a, a real youthful crowd. You know, these adventure riders are generally, you know, people later in life that have the money and time to go do this. And we're not at our, our, our peak of our lives. We're not 20. We're not 18. We're not 19. You know, that's, and so it really, yeah, it, it's a big deal. And, and of course, you know, you just start making bad choices, the more tired you get. I don't know if I agree with you as far as not at the peak of my life, but I get the 20 thing. Okay. So if we, <laughs> if we look at, if, if we go, okay, I, I take it back. I take it back. <laughs> not the peak of life. How about the peak of our, our, our human performance physically. Okay. Well, See, I like that, Brad. Now we're getting back on the same plane again. So, okay. So, so how can we do this? How can we conserve energy? Well, um, you know, there's, uh, one of the things I did this year is an example. Uh, I did the tour tech rally in the West coast over here in plain Washington. And last year I, I put a class out and it was kind of a joke and I, I called it poser skills. And I wasn't really actually going out to do silly things and to get people hurt. It was just a way to make fun and to do fun things that make us better, better riders. And this year there was such a demand after last year that, that I actually had to bring in a second instructor to help me out to keep the ratios right. And we ran this again, but to get to the point, it was these, these, the skill development, the precision development that has to happen with these these things that I called poser skills that really helped us become more consistent and more confident and more deliberate and to conserve less energy. And a lot of it was also just changing the mindset that we have as a rider when certain things happen. I can imagine somebody having a heyday with this one, poser skills, adventure riders, Starbucks, all those sorts of things. So, so how can, how can these poser, well, give an example, what kind of poser skills? Well, I'll start with, well, there's some, I, I'm going to save the best for last, but one of the, one of the things we did is, you know, I was just talking about the 
importance of when the bike starts to tip over, let it go. And of course, I was trying to let him learn how to do that with flair because we all know at some point you're going to drop the bike, you know, it's, whether it's a lost footing or the bike is heavier. And so we'd have these guys up on the hills and turning the bikes around and, and every once in a while the bike would tip or the side stand would they'd put into a soft spot. And I was teaching them that, hey, when you step off this bike, because we did some really cool like rolling dismounts where they come throw the side stand and then walk away from the bike as the bike falls onto the side stand on its own, you know, and it just looks amazing. But what I was really doing is teaching them how not to wrestle the bike, how not to work to put it even on a side stand. But also I told them never, ever look back because no matter what you hear behind you, don't look back. You just got to look cool. And so if you step <laughs> off the bike and it hit, and you just hear your bike crunch into the ground, just keep walking. Don't look back. And, and <laughs> exactly how you planned it. Exactly. Well, I meant to do that. You yeah. know, and one of the guys, it was so much fun because he did this on a hill. We're going down the steep hill and he stops at the bottom. And so the bike is still angled up at nearly 45 degrees. And, and he just right at the last minute, just sort of lost the balance. The bike tipped and I could see him just hesitate momentarily. And as the bikes start to tip over, he just stepped off of the bike, facing away from the bike, and then just kept walking. And it, I was so proud of him. It was like, dude, that's exactly what I'm talking about. But just to be clear, though, you do let the bike down softly. Well, the thing is, is if, if it's 600 pounds and on an angle like that, you're not going to save it. You know, we're going to grab it and we're going to throw our backs out or we're going to get our legs pinned underneath it. The best thing to do is just get clear of the bike. That's why we have crash bars and hand guards and all this stuff. I mean, you're, you're just, you're going to hurt yourself and then you're really in a position. And what I was working towards and, and the point of this wasn't that we're walking away and looking cool, but the point was, is don't worry about it because worrying about it stresses you out and stressing you out burns energy. And you got to figure riding a big, big bike, like an adventure bike in off-road situations, you're going to put it down. It's as simple as that. It's got, I, I don't care how good you are. I don't care how well you pack something at some point is going to happen and the bike's going to tip over and hopefully you're not crashing. You know, there's a difference between tipping <laughs> over and crashing, but at some point the bike's going to tip over. You're going to put it in mud. The side sand's going to, you know, slip or sink, or you're not going to have footing or, or you're just tired and you make a mistake and it's going to tip over. It's not a big deal. I mean, that's why we teach things like the monkey lift and these and these leverage lifts to get the bikes up where we're protecting ourselves. And again, energy efficient, you know, lifts for the bikes, um, because it's such a, such an important skill. That's sort of what you do when you're doing your training sessions, isn't it? You, you have a problem like this. Somebody puts a bike down. You always take that opportunity to, to look at that situation and turn it into a sort of a, a learning exercise. I, I, absolutely. I do. And, and the, the poser skills, I do that quite a bit, but one of the, the training things I do that really gives it the most realistic environment and that really gives us what I've referred to as lessons of opportunity is when we do our immersion training. And as you know, we do um, training up along parts of the Washington backcountry discovery route. And we're doing one in July and that packed up and we open it up other one in August and that's filling up really fast. So I'm really excited that we have two of these going on this year, but because we're actually out on the trail and we're on these situations and we're doing it, the situations are going to happen that you can't make them more realistic. And to, to help people work through this and to help them how to pick up and to work as a team to do this, uh, the lessons are, are absolutely you know, concreted into their, their memories. And, and there's no doubt that you, 
you don't have to go, well, the reason we're doing this is because in the real world you would. No, you're in the real world. You're doing it because you have to do it. And you have professionals with you helping you out. And that's why we do that. And and of course, having us with you and, and being able to carry the heavy luggage and put it in the support vehicle and then know that you have somebody there that knows how to help you out, and that knows where the area is, helps drop that stress and helps tune them as they work through each of these different challenges along the, you know, the training routes that we do. Do you prefer the immersion training over your base camp style training? You know, I think they both have a lot of advantage. You know, the advantage of the the closed core stuff, the poser skills, the adventure camps is you really can isolate a very specific skill set and and focus sure. on it. Yeah. But there's absolutely nothing that replaces doing it for real. You know, I I can learn Spanish here in in college, but when you really perfect it is when you go to Mexico or you, when you go to Colombia or when you go to Argentina, when you have to use it. And that's what this immersion training and why it's so popular and why we're opening more dates. I mean, that August date, I, I just, I was opening going, well, we'll see if we get enough people. And, and I'm amazed at the people I've got people coming from New York and from Canada and from California, all coming up to do this, even though it was a last minute, um, you know, dates that we put up because it, it makes such a difference and and there just doesn't seem to be a lot out there. And I think they recognize that there's no replacement for just being hands-on and doing it in the real world. Well, back to the poser skills then. So what other sort of poser skills? Okay. So two of the other ones that I really like was one is a, a rolling dismount where, where riders are rolling, you know, we teach them to stand and they stand on one side of the bike, they stand on the other side of the bike. And, and what we teach them is how to roll up to a stop, Come to a nice smooth stop, step off the bike from the left side from a standing position, and then what they'll do is counterweight the bike opposite direction, swing the side stand down, pull it towards them, and walk away. And the bike kind of falls onto its side stand, but it, and it looks amazing. I mean, it, because you you can actually be pretty cruddy rider on the trails, but everybody sees you stop and start. So if you look really good at the beginning, the ending, <laughs> you'll impress your friends, right? <laughs> Which again, his wife falls into that poser skills. But the, what I like about that that particular skill set, and, and it develops in something else they call a bar stop, is that you're standing both legs on one side of the bike, on the, on the foot peg. The bike is leaning away from you lightly, and you have to pull the clutch in, and you're using just the front brake to buy, bring the bike to a nice, smooth stop. And right as it comes to a stop, you just gently step down off the bike, and it's a, it's a wonderful development of finesse. And of course, if you mess up, the bike tips over and that's just part of it. But when we teach it, I, I just, that just never happens. Not when we're, we're hands-on because we're there to coach people step-by-step. And it's that finesse, that development of getting it to stop when you want it to stop and to have that smooth control on the brakes, to have the ability to neutralize the weight of the bike as you're stepping off. That's the transferable skill. That's that energy conservation concept that, I was, I was so blatantly, you know, reminded of during this butt stomper race as I'm out there huffing and puffing in my helmet, um, realizing I'm working harder than I, I need to be working. And a lot of it just had to do with, you know, lack of practice in that specific environment. Um, the one I, I, the kind of another one, if, if you don't mind me sharing one other stop is what I call a bar stop. And this is one, I actually did a little video of this uh, for people to, to find online and kind of play with. 
and it's the same thing. It's all about finesse. And, and what we do is we start up against the, like a, like a wall, like a big concrete wall or something like that. And you ride your bike up next to it. You come to a nice standing up on the pegs. You come to a nice smooth stop, clutches in, using the front brake, and you just come to a stop and then you let the bike tip into the wall. And you want to be close enough to the wall that your bike is still almost vertical. You never put your feet down, never do anything. You just come to a nice smooth stop. And then when it's time to go, you just power away from the wall. And you just pull the bike, use a little bit of your body weight to shift it off the wall, and then you just power away and you don't spin the tire or anything else. And it's a, it's a wonderful skill for developing this this very smooth, you know, clutch and brake and power, you know, overlap that becomes useful when you're in, on a stuck on a hill or stuck in the mud or or doing a river crossing. It, it crosses over to all that stuff. So, what is it? What's the trick behind it all? If there is a trick, well, for me, of course, practice is always one of the big things, and so. Um, the trick is really just being smooth, being smooth on the brake, especially the front brake. So, you know, get away from using the four finger thing. If you're still into four finger braking, um, I highly recommend doing these sort of skill sets to break it down and use fewer, you know, whether it's one, two or three, but try to get away from the four because it gives you a little better control of the handlebars as you're doing these overlapping um, controls. But What's, uh, what's good is once you move from this hard wall position, then usually I find like a tree or, uh, like a pillar, you know, like, you know, building pillars type of thing. And I'll ride up next to those so that I have to time the stop and I'll time it right next to the pillar. And then I'll let the, the bar end, the handlebar tip up against the, you know, the post. And then I gently pull the bike away and I power away. My feet are always on the pegs. I'm standing the entire time and I just do this over and over and over until it's smooth. And then, you know, I'll go to something much smaller. I, I even did it once where I had a friend's bike and it was sitting there and I came up and I put my handguard against their handguard, stood there and talked to them and then rode off. And again, that's why it falls into this poser skills, but it's, it's not really that it's just a poser skill. It's this you're learning how to precisely stop at exactly the point you want with exactly the amount of brake you want with just enough power to get this bike to roll away. And it's this very smooth, repetitive overlapping of controls. And it's just doing it over and over and over again until, until it's relaxing, until there's no energy spent, until you're not thinking about it. And again, thought burns energy. The brain processing information burns way more energy than people um, can think about. And you just do it until it doesn't matter. And on the trail, it works. You stop up against a tree. You don't have to put your feet down. And just the confidence to be able to stop exactly where you want, to be able to start without spinning the back tire, huge, huge benefit. Going back to the other side of it now, because you mentioned about um, about motion and about making decisions, more confidence, things like that. Um, what on that side um, can we use to conserve energy? Well, what I'm looking at is the more you have to process, the more energy it takes to do it. And things come at you very fast. And and I kind of mentioned this whole fatigue thing, how it makes everything more difficult. And, you know, when, you're, when your brain is not fatigued, you make more clear decisions. You're more confident in your decisions. You're more deliberate and accurate in your writing. And in the end, you're actually much, much safer. You, you take a lot less risk. And so when we can eliminate the speed of information coming at us, 
then we are able to relax the mind and to spend more time focused on different things. And, and we talked some time ago about, you know, kind of trail reading and, and reading the train or looking farther through the trees to see is there a car coming at us or a, or a logging truck coming at us. And I, I mentioned this when I talk about street training, the same thing about getting the vision farther out because people that crash on like, for example, on the road, and same thing happens on gravel roads. You see where they go through corners and they just run off the side of the road. And it was never a traction issue. It was never a lean issue. It's just the rider sort of panics and gives up. And they often will talk about how the road is compressing on them or it was decreasing radius. But when you look at the radius of the curve, it, it wasn't decreasing radius. What was happening was the information that they were having to process, the rate of information coming at them about the road condition or the trail or another vehicle was happening faster than they could sort the information. And that gets them in trouble. So again, all of this, you know, comes back to this whole energy conservation. Give yourself more time to process it. Um, you know, develop these fine motor skills so you don't have to think about them. And my big reminder after this race was stay in practice. You know, and I I knew going out I was I was uh, I was out of practice and and I wouldn't be walking the next day and and that was fairly true. <laughs> um, just because using muscles I don't use, I'm just sort of crawl out of the bed. And probably not crawl, gripping a yeah. cup of coffee either. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was it was inc- uh, Yeah, I couldn't hardly hold on to the bike, so it was. Uh, you know, I, it, it reminded me that, oh yeah, I should, I should do this more if I want to keep doing this. But, but there's but, times like you, you've talked before, but there's times about, you know, being committed. So you get into something, you think, okay, I can do this. This is my line and I'm going to commit to it and do it. And that takes a certain amount of momentum to get you through that, that gets you through with little energy. Whereas if you go slow and you bounce off stuff and you have to dab a foot or something like that, that all of a sudden becomes high stress, high energy. Am I right there? Hey, absolutely. Hey, and, and, you know, with this motion induced balance, like you said, the slower you go, that means your front tire is kicking more when it catches a rock and kicks left or right. It's much more dramatic. You, you end up having to buffer that with your, your muscles when you're riding faster, you just glaze over it and, and hardly even notice it. And sand, rock, gravel, water. I mean, this stuff all overlaps and you're absolutely correct on that. The more mentally fatigued we get, though, the slower we end up going and then we end up working hard. And, and you already mentioned it's a spiral effect. Once you start getting fatigued mentally or physically, it just gets worse and worse. And you start working harder and harder and harder and making worse and worse decisions. So unlike your 24-hour race, that's the when you stop, take a break. Um. Theoretically, like, but like, it, what I'm trying to say is like, unlike is your 24 race. hour race, you, you know, <laughs> no, no, I mean, with your race, you're racing, you have to go and that's why you get fatigued and that's how you make mistakes. I mean, that's part of racing. That's what it's all about. That's what makes it tough. But for us as adventure riders, if we're out riding somewhere and we're finding where, Hey, I'm starting to get sloppy here because I'm physically tired. That's the time to take a break, isn't it? Well, and that's the, the mature rider. That's when you know somebody's you know, old enough and wise enough to know that that's the decision they have to make. And, and I'm teasing about the race, but one of my team members did exactly that. He got halfway through and he got off the bike and sat on the side of the trail and, <laughs> and basically took a nap, you know, he's like, we got 24 hours, you know, and, and you know, our big thing is just keeping bikes in motion. But he knew at that point, if he kept going, he may not even finish the lap. And even from a racing perspective, 
that's worse than if he just stops and gets off the bike, even if it's a 30 minute where he just has to sit down, catch his breath, drink water. And you're, you're right. A lot of riders, especially when they ride with other people, they have an instance to not want to hold up the other riders and they, they make bad choices. Like, I, well, I'm just going to push through. And I always respect the rider that goes, you know what? I'm exhausted. I need a break. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mentioned even on this immersion training, we have a support vehicle that runs in tow and we've had, you know, we've had a rider that came up and said, look, I'm smoked. I'm, I don't feel safe anymore. And we're like, Hey, well, let's call in the truck and, you know, ride tomorrow. And we threw his bike on it and he jumped in the truck and went back and, you know, had a great time sharing stories that night, got on his bike and rode the next day. But he was smart enough to go, look, I'm not safe anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm over my limit. I've met my threshold. I, I need to find a way out. And, and he had that option because he was working, you know, he was with us. He had a support team, but if you're on your own, maybe that's time to set up camp. So for rider skills practice, what do we have? All right. So I think, because I just think it's such a cool thing. I think guys should go practice this whole bar stop thing because again, you learn the timing you master your clutch and power output. You utilize the the balance and you neutralize the weight. And it's got all these different things, and and it just looks really really cool. So here's what they here's what I'm going to suggest they do: take their bike, and and like I said, find a find a solid wall like a, like a big concrete wall or a loading dock or something where your handlebar height is equal to the wall. Now we don't have a very specific spot to stop, and and ride up parallel to it. Carry a little momentum in. Pull the clutch in start to apply both brakes, come to a nice smooth stop and let the bike tip into the wall. And when we tip, we're only going to be tipping over a couple of inches. We're not like going feet. You want to be as close to vertical as you can. And then power off the wall uh, or pull the bike out just using a little bit of um, handlebar. You tug on the handlebars. You can move your body to the outside peg. It'll naturally come off the wall. And then power away from that. And do that until it just becomes really, really smooth. And then transition that to to trees or post. And and then just keep working up the challenges along it. It's a really fun skill. It looks amazing. But the side benefits are immense. Absolutely and immense. The only precaution I think with that, you'd have to make sure your panniers don't stick out wider than your bars. Well, you can lean up against your pannier. Nobody says you can't do that. Oh, that's true. Okay, I get yeah. it. All, all you have to do is let it lean up against something. So and, and and that's going to help you master your clutch and your power delivery the whole bit, which you're always talking about. And and you know the confidence that comes with it. Uh, yeah, it's it, everything we go to goes back to these. You need to have those skill sets really polished for everything else to work. And almost every skill set we talk about, we come back to this this core value or core need. And this is a it, this is a really fun way to do this because you don't have to be out on the trails. You don't have to go out to the woods. You can do this behind your work possibly or on the way home from work or just go out to the to the neighborhood or a store that's closed and do this. Use light poles in uh, in a parking lot. And so it's something that people can do to develop their skill sets to be better adventure riders and not have to leave but a couple blocks from home, if that far. So, Brett, for the average rider, the average person that likes to get out and ride their adventure bike, how much practice do you think they should be doing, doing this type of skills that you talk about here on this show or that you teach in your classes? How much practice do you think they should be doing, maybe on a weekly basis? 
if they if they do skills like this bar stop, they can practice every time they get on their bike. They can practice every single week. And that's how you stay fresh. And that's what I was missing during my my racing was those skill sets. I, I hadn't had a chance to really put them to the test. So I, I was refreshing and kind of getting back up to speed as the race was going on, but I'm also burning all that energy. So for me, obviously, if you want to be the best in the world, you're going to be on that bike almost every day and, and using that. But as an average rider, at least when you get on the bike, pick one skill set to work on that day every single time you get on the bike. And, and so what I always call it is ride with a plan. Know that today I'm going to work on standing and I'm just going to always work on staying up and, and not trying to put my feet down. And when I come to a stop, I'm going to put my foot to the ground, but not my butt to the seat. Or today I'm going to work on this precision stop. I want to make sure I'm stopping exactly. I can stop on a dime every single time and I'm going to do the bar stop to do that. So I think if a rider just says every single time I get on the bike, I'm going to pick one single thing to work on when there's vision or whatever that that will help them be as proficient as they can be with the time that they have available. Now, before we wrap things up, I'm going to take you back to when you said about the front brake and you said, people, if you're still doing four fingers, you want to look at that. Which fingers do you use? How many fingers? You know, I, you know, my opinion has become more versatile as I spend more time doing this and more research for myself. I used to use, uh, my pointer finger and my middle finger, my preferences, because those are detail fingers. If you think of yourself doing fine detail work, those are the ones that always get involved. They have good sensitivity, they have good mobility, but it's, uh, it's not always the best. And what I've seen is as I work with riders, I have to work with what works for them, not what works for me. And the farther out you are on the lever, the less effort it takes. So I've found some riders do much better when they have three fingers or if they slide farther out of the grip. So they're grabbing the very ends of their levers, the clutch and the brake, because they require less energy to, to have feedback. So if they have small hands or, or less strength, that's something that works for them. So I really don't have a, this is the way you should do it anymore. What I do is I try to look at the riders and what's going to work best for them. And, and, you know, when, and this is what I really like about this immersion training that we do is I, I have enough time with them. I have days with them because, you know, we're four days together on this, on these traveling tours where we can experiment and try different things and I can help find what works for them. They can help find what works for them. So unfortunately I don't have a magic formula. Well, I know that makes me feel better, actually, because I've tried it a bunch of different ways to try and find what works for me. Um, because, you know, one method is to hold on to your handlebar with your pointer finger and your index finger and use your, your pinky and your next finger for the clutch. Um, then the other method is, of course, the other way around, or even just using one finger for the clutch. And I've, I've tried sort of all of them to, to see which, you know, works. And it, I find it depends on the situation. I mean, sometimes you want a, a better hold on the bar. Like, for instance, I've got a tank bag on that, which I, I really don't like because it's too big. It tends to put me too far back going up a hill. From then, I, I sometimes find myself holding on to the bars more than what I, what I should be doing, but I have no choice at that point because I actually can't get my weight further forward. Then I need a little bit more strength, so I've got to use the, the two main fingers. Well, and that's that's exactly the way it should be working is as long as you're changing for a specific reason and you don't become so ingrained that you're not flexible, because uh, of course bikes are going to make a difference too. Some bikes have, you know, cable clutches that are very heavy. 
Others have a very lightweight hydraulic clutch. So that's going to make a difference. You know, how much ener how energy efficient is your front brake? Do you need four fingers to get it to work 100%? Um, you know, like KLRs have a very um, a dated braking system. They require a lot of effort to get those bikes to stop as much as possible. And you know, some of the early 1200 GSs back in the, the mid-2000s, for a while they had power-assisted, which, of course, you know, was crazy, but you could almost breathe on the lever and, and make it. So, of course, those are two extremes, but you have to adapt to the machine. You have to adapt to the environment. You have to adapt to the rider. And, and again, as much as I love the detailed training of the adventure camps and the, the poser skills where we get this micro-focus, having four days with somebody on the trail, working with them, doing these things, uh, like, like the one that's coming up in August, um, if I had mentioned, I still have openings. Uh, <laughs> what's, what's the date but, in August? Um, it's August 22nd through August 25th. And we start um, down near Stevenson, Washington, right on the Oregon, um, Cal or Washington, Oregon border. And then we head up through the Cascade Mountains from there. We do training down in that area. But we get to spend four days where we can really experiment. And, and you know, like you said, what works in the morning may not be working at the end of the day because as the fatigue level changes, does that also mean your technique changes? And I only get to do that if I get to spend that kind of time with people. You're going to have to develop a whole new program for the dual clutch system. <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, i i haven't you know i i have to admit i i haven't had a chance to spend much time on it i i did the vfr 1200 when it first came out mm -hmm. i actually thought it was kind of cool uh and i i've ridden one of the you know the africa twins i i have used the auto clutches i've used them on the 800 gs um did a race i did the desert 100 with it and I, yeah but the, the the auto clutch that, that's not the same as the dual clutch system that uh no, the, it's the, different yeah it's different yeah it's different so, yeah, it'll be – I'm really excited, actually, to get some riders in with those systems because uh, we'll, we'll go to learn together. And I, I can't wait for that opportunity. Well, Brett, thank you very much. Once again, some great information there. And we've got the rider skills practice, the bar stop. Get out there and ride your bike. I, I, have, I have so much fun coming on the show. I can't wait for the next one. And that, of course, was Brett Tax on our rider skills segment. Uh, Brett is one of the owners of PSSOR. And by the way, if you're interested in the immersion training that he mentioned there, I think you'll find the information at their website, www.pssor.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. It was just insane. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com <laughs> 
Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and you, of course, the listener. Thank you very much. Remember, you can download all of our episodes for free. Just drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and you can find out all of uh, the episodes listed there on Adventure Rider Radio. You can also find our raw episodes, which is the episode that we do once a month, or sorry, the show that we do once a month, which is roundtable discussions about motorcycle travel, etc., with other people on it. So drop by the website and click on that as well. Don't forget to drop by our Facebook page and like us on Facebook. Otherwise, it's time to get out there and ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. Hi, I'm Stu Clark from the Pack Track, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 